We can all go home after that. (laughs) Well, this is uh, the time of the year in August where we usually take a few Sundays to answer some of your questions. You know, preaching by definition is one-way communication, so... You know, you don't get to answer questions. Some people do ask questions, but I never answer uh, in the middle of a sermon. But uh, this is a great time because a lot of people are going and coming on vacation. And instead of just, you know, them missing part of a series just to do some question and answer and just talk about a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of times you might have Bible questions. And if you were to wait until I got to the place in the Bible that addressed your question, you would have to wait for a long time. So this is your opportunity to, you know, hear some of uh, things addressed in, in a shorter time than 20 years from now or whatever. Uh, so we're just going to start off here so we can try and get as many questions answered as possible. And question number one is uh, related to the doctrine of the church. And it is this. Question one, part A. And now, now I just want you to know, people don't put them in part A, B, and C, but they ask them that way. So I put them in that way because a lot of times they just, I have a question, which is really six. Um, part A. In light of the recent church discipline situation, why was the unrepentant person described as going apostate? And that is a very good question. First of all, you need to know there are several different categories of disobedient people. I just want to give these to you so you understand the pool from which apostates come. First of all, there are unbelievers who do not profess to be followers of Christ, do not profess to be Christians. You know, they're agnostics, atheists, um, you know, any false religionism, schism you can put out. They're unbelievers. Um, these people are not apostates. Um, secondly, there are unbelievers who profess to be believers, but no, they're not. This is the person who comes to church and they say they're a Christian and they know they're not. They know they don't love God. They don't love God's word. They don't love God's people. And they come to church for selfish reasons. Maybe they want their conscience uh, massaged or, you know, to ease their guilt. Or um, maybe they want to drum up business in the foyer or they want to look good in the community. um, Or maybe they're just have some sort of fascination with Christianity or they like just the morality of Christianity. uh, Lots of different reasons. But they know they don't love Christ. They know they aren't true believers. And so they come to church and sit among you. And maybe they're sitting next to you right now. Um, Third, there are unbelievers who profess to be Christians, but they don't know they're unbelievers. That's a whole different category. These are the people who are shocked on judgment day to discover they're unbelievers. They're in the church. They may be involved in ministry. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew 7, 19 through 21. Read it. They're just, they're shocked. They think they're on the narrow way that goes to heaven and they're on the broad way to hell. And they don't find out until after they die or Christ comes back. So... Out of these categories of unbelievers, apostates come from the second and third. They come from that those group of people who are religious but unbelievers, whether they know it or not. Now, of course, among true believers, those who are truly saved, 
transformed, born again, have the Holy Spirit permanently abiding in them. There's basically two categories. One category would be those walking in the spirit and those living in unconfessed sin. And that's, you know, there's other subcategories, but we'll just call that good. When we talk about an apostate, we're talking about somebody who falls away from the faith they once professed. They professed to be a believer, but were not, whether they knew it or not, and then have fallen away. The Greek word for trans, that we get apostasy from is apostasia. So it almost comes over directly into English. It does pretty much, almost exactly. There's three other words that are also used to describe apostasy in the New Testament. For instance, in Matthew 24:10, speaking of those who fall away from the faith during the end times, we read this. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. The Greek word translated fall away in verse 10 is the Greek verb scandalizo, the word we get scandalized from. And the point here is that they, these people are religious, they're among believers, but either tribulation or distress or some temptation or whatever in the tribulation or during the tribulation time scandalizes them so they depart and deny what's Christ, though they once professed to believe him. The noun form of the word is um, scandalon, and it means stumbling block, to put a stumbling block before somebody. Um, you know, in uh, Romans 14, 21, and 1 Corinthians 8, 13, where it talks about the use of our Christian liberties. And you remember in there, it says we need to be careful not to put a stumbling block in someone's way, a scandalon. Why? Because there may be a person who is either saved and we hinder their walk with the Lord by the use of our liberty, or somebody who's investigating Christianity is coming to church and our liberty offends them so they go away. And we have offended them. We have caused them to stumble. So the verb form of the word speaks of the act of being a stumbling block, the noun of the stumbling block itself. Now, those who are religious unbelievers in a time of trial or temptation sometimes fall away from the faith they once professed. And we all know about people like this. It's not that they are saved and then become unsaved. It's that they profess to follow Christ and then reject him. They deny the faith, are led away, they desert Christianity, they become disgruntled or tempted, and they fall away. In Luke 8.13, another word is used to describe the seed sown among the rocky soil. And uh, this word means to depart from, fall away from, or become faith, faithless. It is the word me. The seed sown among the rocky soil is described in Luke 8.13 with these words. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, a fistemi, fall away. So, again... 
Just like the other two terms, apostasia and scandalizo, there is a association, an interest in religion, a knowledge received, and then a rejection of it. Another word is used, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where the author of Hebrews, speaking of those who received full revelation of Christ and then fell away, he says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and again, he's not talking about believers here, he's talking about those who have been enlightened, that is, they've had the gospel clearly explained to them. They know the truth, they know what they need to know in order to be saved. And then it says, and then have tasted the heavenly gift. And that, that word tasted means they didn't swallow it. They sampled it. They, they saw what it meant in the lives of other Christians associating with believers, what it meant to be a believer. And not only that, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've been around spirit-filled people, worshipped with spirit-filled people, um, associated themselves with spiritual people, and the powers of the age to come, because in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was even performing miracles. They even saw miracles, and then have fallen away. That group of people, those who have fallen away there, uh, again, they go apostate. Verse 6 says that after receiving all of this knowledge, and both intellectually and experientially, they have fallen away. And the word used there is parapipto. It means to fall away or deviate from the right path. So in the New Testament, when you're talking about apostasy, you have apostasia, scandalizo, ephistemi, parapipto. All those words have this basic concept. Somebody receives the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, associates themselves with believers for a time, and then rejects Christ and turns their back and goes back into the world into unrepentant sin. Now, when you talk about people departing from the faith, you have to ask, what, what is that? When they depart from the faith or the faith of Christianity, the faith is, when the Bible speaks of the faith with the the in front of it, it's talking about every, all the doctrines of Christianity. All the doctrines of Christianity and the behavior that goes with obeying those doctrines. What it means to be a Christian. So when you talk about somebody denying the faith, you're saying they're rejecting submission to the doctrines that define what it means to be a Christian. You remember what Jesus said in John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. That's what a Christian is. They know Jesus. They hear Jesus' voice, his words, his truth, and they follow them. That's a sheep. Now, of course, sheep who don't do that, they're just wolf bait. You know, they wander off and they become prey. People in the world. When someone determines in their heart to engage in sin, to not repent of it, even though they've been confronted privately by two or more, then by the whole church... And they decide to just run headlong into their sin. They are taking the path of apostasy. Let's just say for a moment that that you come to Calvary Bible Church. You hear the gospel. Maybe you're convicted of your sin in some sermon. You decide, you know, I want to become religious. I think I want to become a Christian. 
So you start coming to church more faithfully. You start reading your Bible. You start learning things about the Bible, things you never knew before. You get kind of excited about the things you're learning. It's very fascinating to you. You decide to get baptized. You go to the baptism class. You then stand up in front of the church and you give a a profession of faith that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've committed yourself to follow Christ. You then decide to become a member. You go to the membership class. You hear about what the church believes, your responsibility. You decide this is what I want. You go and you ask for a membership form. You fill that thing out. You write out your testimony. You sign your name to it. I am a Christian and I'm signing my name to this thing. You then go and are interviewed by an elder. And you defend your faith faith verbally before one of the leaders of the church and say, I am a Christian. Um, Yes, I am a Christian. I want to be part of this body. I want to be, you know, a member here. Then the elders talk about it and they agree to have you be part of a member. Then you stand up here on the stage during a fellowship service and then you commit yourself to the church as a Christian to be part of this body. During this time, you're talking to people at work. People know you come here. You're talking to people maybe about the Bible, what you're learning. Maybe you're sharing your faith. Maybe you've even been persecuted a little bit for the faith because you're following Christ. And then, after time, some sin comes along, some scandalon, you know, some woman, some drug, some alcohol, pornography, stealing, lying, whatever it is, money illegal money deal, whatever. And you get ensnared by this, and now you weigh Christ and your sin in the balance, and Christ is found wanting to you. So you quit coming to church, and you start wandering away. A friend finds out. He confronts you. You say, sorry, I'm going to do this anyway. Two or more people come. They say, you know, you need to turn. Maybe more people come. Finally, it gets to the elders. The elders tell it to the church. And then you are called to engage that person and to bring them to repentance through prayer, letters, phone calls, one-on-one conversations. Why? Because they are taking the path of apostasy. I don't care what they say about themselves. If they once were here, once made the profession, know the truth, and are turned away from it, that is the definition of apostasy. Now, if you want some further study on this, I would encourage you to go through the Basic Bible Doctrine series and listen to the messages on man, sin, Man and sin, that's one lesson. Salvation and the relationship between faith and works. There's three lessons. You can download them off the internet. You can get them from the office. There's 14 audio messages that go with these. If you've never listened to them, every Christian should go through them. It is so critical to understand these things. I'd strongly recommend these. If you're looking for something to study, do it. I'd also encourage you to listen to a message on Judas from May 1st, 2005 in the series on the chosen apostles. Judas is the classic example of an apostate having received full information and then turned his back on Christ. So that's part one. Question one, part B. 
Can someone who goes apostate be forgiven or granted repentance? Because this often always comes up. We talk about somebody, okay, you know, now they've gone away. They've rejected Christ. Well, should we keep praying for them? Should we witness to them? Should we keep calling to repentance? Or should we get to the place where it's just, it's over for you, pal? You know, what do we do? Well... What does the word of God say? Now, when they ask this question, they reference Genesis 25 and Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. If you remember, Genesis 25 is about Esau who despised his birthright. He was young. He was hungry, like young men always are. He came in from hunting. He was starving and said, hey, can you give me that bowl soup? And Jacob, who longed for the birthright, said, yeah, if you give me your birthright, he said, sure. And he gave him. A bowl of soup and in doing that Esau despised his birthright which is a huge thing and saw it as no more valuable than a bowl of soup. Well later on when Jacob got the blessing Esau really wanted it. He wanted it so bad he wept for it but he wanted it for selfish reasons and he wanted it but he never repented of despising it. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 verses 16 17 talks about Esau longing for the blessing and though he wept he found no place for repentance now as we've just learned walking away from Christ after receiving full revelation is eternally serious business it is the most serious thing that could happen to anybody who ever comes into church and you say well why is that Listen to what the scriptures say about those who come to church, learn the gospel, and then decide to walk away. Here it is, Hebrews 6.6. 6. Those who receive full revelation, both intellectually, experientially, and fellowshipping with the saints, and then have fallen away, he says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Later on in Hebrews 10, 27, 26 and 27, we read, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, notice again, you receive the knowledge of the truth, what happens then? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What does remain? A certain terrifying expectation of judgments, he says, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Now that is not good. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Peter, in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 through 22, describing apostates, says, For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice again, there is a receiving of the truth. They even start walking in the truth. They start turning their back on sin. But they are again, he says, entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. What is the first state? The first state they were in is an unbeliever living in sin with the wrath of God abiding on them. The last state is they are an unbeliever living in sin with full revelation of the truth, with knowledge of the gospel, knowing how to be saved, experiencing the fellowship of the saints and having rejected that so that it is no longer possible for them to be saved. 
That is a bad thing. (laughs) That's as bad as it can get. He goes on to say, verse 21, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. The common factor in all of these verses describing apostates are they all hear the truth. They all know the gospel. They all hang around believers and experience corporate worship and fellowship. And then after having all of that revelation, both intellectual and experiential, they turn their back on Christianity and walk away. That is what an apostate is. The three terrifying sayings that describe them are one. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance Two, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And three, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So, can an apostate be brought to repentance? No. No. They cannot. That's what the word of God says. But there is hope. And some of you are thinking, well, how can there be hope if there's no hope? Because only God knows who is apostate and who is just a believer that's entangled in sin. Only God knows that. We don't know. We don't know. Only God knows if a person is beyond the point of no return. Apostates are described in this way as a warning for those who might be thinking of wandering away. As a warning. That... There is a place where you are given over and it's over. That is why when we do public discipline and obey the scriptures in that way, and the elders say, we want you to contact the person. We want you to contact the person. I don't care if you know them or not. You write them a letter, you call them on the phone, talk to them, speak to them, whatever. Why? Because... When somebody is committing to walk away from Christ, they are placing themselves in the most perilous and serious position that anybody could be placed in. It is a terrifying thing. And so the best thing, the most loving thing we can do for them is in unison as a body of believers beg somebody not to go in that direction. And you know what? Since I've been here, about half the people we've done that to have turned around and come back. And praise God for that. So, somebody who is an apostate comes in, gets the information, professes to be a Christian, and then decides to walk away from Christ. They go apostate. That's why it was said that. Finally, is apostasy the the unpardonable sin spoken of in Mark 3, 28 through 30? And let me just read that text. Jesus speaking, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never, um, the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, formally speaking, the unpardonable sin is this. Jesus is ministering. He is preaching the truth. He is performing miracles by the Holy Spirit. And then people attribute his miracles to Satan, to being performed. And Jesus says, you know what? You can sin against me. 
But when I do things by the power of the Holy Spirit and you say that Satan, you know what? It is over for you. Period. That sin will never be forgiven. That is the unpardonable sin. And people like to ask this because, you know, they, they don't want to commit the unpardonable sin. I mean, they like to, you know, sin a lot of sins, but they don't want to commit that one. You know, it's kind of like you don't get out of jail. You just were welded in the cage. And so people say, you know, is there any way I it, can I still commit the unpardonable sin? So formally speaking, no. In principle, you could say that maybe any prophet of God who is coming, preaching the word of God, performing miracles um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you attributed that to Satan, um, you, you know, maybe during the tribulation that sin could be committed again. But um, you don't have to worry about that particular one today. But get this. Any sin earned you, earned you a ticket to hell. Anyone no matter how small in thought or deed, break one commandment, you break them all. I am so surprised at how many people, you know, when you're talking to them, yeah, you know, so, um, you know, you, uh, you see yourself as pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You, what about, do you know the 10 commandments? Well, yeah, I, I don't break those. Really? Yeah. 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 I'm pretty good. So you've never lied. Well, I, I've lied. You ever lied at least once? Well, yeah. Well, what's that make you? I, I guess a liar. There's no guessing. <laughs> you, you're a liar. You're a liar. You, you ever committed adultery? <laughs> no. You ever lusted after somebody? Well, yeah. There you go. Adultery in the bud. You're guilty of adultery. You've been angry, buddy. You're a murderer. Ever covet anything? You're covetous. You ever given anything to anybody or anything that God deserved? You're an idolater. You're in bad shape, pal. Any sin, though, to any degree, earns you a ticket to hell. Any sin is an infinite offense to a perfectly holy God. And he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. And if you're guilty, I don't care if you're an axe murderer or that you just thought one little minor negative thought about somebody. You are, you deserve hell. You earned hell. But even though any sir, any sin gives you and earns you the right to go to hell, only one sin seals your doom. And that is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your savior. That, figuratively speaking, is the unpardonable sin. When you get to the place where you die and you've rejected Christ, it's over for you. I'm telling you, if you place your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He was nothing more than just an attacker, blasphemer of Christ, murderer of Christians. The chief of sinners. God saved him. He wrote most of the New Testament. God will save any sinner. His his salvation is sufficient to forgive you of all sins, no matter how small, no matter how great, no matter what degree. You could be the all-time Olympic 
axe murdering champion. And you can be forgiven of all of that. It doesn't matter who you are or how much you've done. You could be Hitler and forgiven. His atonement is sufficient for all sin. But you reject Jesus and die, your doom is certain. So, in that way, any sin earns hell. One sin ensures it. That's rejecting Christ. Question two. Pope Benedict VII has changed mass and now Catholics can stand or kneel. Some archbishops have said that you must stand at all times during the mass or it is a mortal sin. What are your thoughts on kneeling or standing in prayer and worship? What is the appropriate stance? Well, I'm going to change that question into what does the Bible say is the appropriate stance in prayer and worship? First of all, realize that the Roman Catholic Church is a false religion. It teaches works salvation, that you have to earn your right to even have a chance to be saved. Do you realize Catholics have no assurance of salvation? If you die and commit a mortal sin right before you die, you know, you go to hell. You do not pass go. You do not collect heaven. Not only that, if you do get the last rites and do confess your sins, you still go to purgatory where you have to atone for your sins and suffer maybe for millions of years. Realize that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation by grace through faith is an accursed doctrine. Now, having said that, there are Roman Catholics who are in the Roman Catholic Church who are saved. But they're not good Roman Catholics. They're bad ones. As a matter of fact, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, they're heretics. Though they may be very committed to the Roman Catholic Church and may call themselves Roman Catholics, you cannot believe what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and be a Christian. So let's just get that straight. So they're not a very good example to talk about proper worship, since unbelievers offer no acceptable worship to God. But the question, what is the appropriate stance in prayer and worship? Well, in some cases it doesn't matter. In other cases it does. Let's just talk about maybe some of the more general cases here. First, realize that our entire lives are be acts of worship. We all know Romans 12.1 says, You are to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So, you're to be a living sacrifice. You are to crawl up on the offer, altar, holy, acceptable to God, and live there all the time when you're mowing the lawn. You know, when you're painting the house, when you're driving down the freeway, you're worshiping. If you have your sins confessed, if you're walking in the spirit, living in the spirit, living for the glory of God, everything you do is worship. Everything you do is to be an act of worship. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God. That is, worship God in all that you do. Music, contrary to what most people think today, is not worship. We can worship God through music, but music is not worship. Prayer is not worship. Do you know that the Bible says if you pray with unconfessed sin in your heart, it's an abomination and a sin. But 
prayer can be a form of worship. We can worship God through prayer if we worship and pray in spirit and truth. The same is true of anything you do as a believer. So having that in mind, all your life is an act of worship. What's the appropriate stance or position? Whatever stance or position you're in. See, that works. And since the Bible says you are to pray at all times in the spirit and be praying always and never ceasing in prayer, that means you're always to be communing with God. What is the appropriate stance in prayer? Whatever you're in when you're communing with God. So in a general way, it doesn't make any difference. But when you start talking about corporate worship, then it starts making a little bit of difference. Because now, like when we gather together to do this on Sunday morning, then there are more guidelines. There are more guidelines. For instance, Jesus commanded in Matthew 6, 5, that we are not to worship to be seen by men. You know, we're worshiping here, having a song, and, you know, somebody over to the side here is jumping up and down and screaming out. And where's everybody looking? Over there. You know, where's everybody thinking about? The crazy guy. You know, is anybody focusing on God? No. Everybody's distracted from the words. They're distracted from thinking about God. And they're going, what's the guy doing? That's bad. Okay. Now, um, if you were on a trampoline in the spirit, that would be fine to jump up and down. You know, in your backyard. But not here. Okay. Not here. Uh, another example might be First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where women are told not to dress uh, or do their hair or wear jewelry during corporate worship in such a way that it might distract others. You know, some woman's up here in this gold sequin dress, and, you know, all these women are going, whoa, look at that dress. You know, I'd love to have a dress like that. And look at those earrings. Man, I think her wedding ring, that looks like an eight-carat diamond. And you're, nobody's, nobody's thinking about God. Nobody's worshiping God. They're just looking at the display case. And the guys are, they're looking at the display case too, but for a whole different reason. And so that would be inappropriate. Though a woman like that might be in a certain circumstance where she's modeling, you know, gold and jewelry. And it's fine. Be in the spirit, worshiping God just fine. Now, sometimes, for instance, let's give you, let's just move away from prayer and worship in general. Let's just talk about some specific things that the scriptures mention. You know, the Bible says we are to raise holy hands to the Lord. And periodically I have people come up to me and usually they're from charismatic uh, backgrounds or, you know, more of the seeker thing where you know people do this and um, they come up and go you know how, how come you don't obey the scriptures and raise holy hands well there's basically two reasons first the text which tell us to raise holy hands that is a, a figure of speech describing that we are to worship in holiness that's what it's talking about it also talks about you know prostrating yourself or kneeling or there's a lot of other positions that are prescribed but those ones like kneeling or bowing would would be emphasizing humility but lifting up holy hands god is more concerned that your heart is holy not the position of your hands 
Now you think, well, I don't know about that. Okay, well, the Bible says we are to greet each other with a holy kiss. You want to do that? I always ask them. You want a whole bunch of strangers coming up to you, laying one on you? Kissing fest? And you're thinking, well, you know, some holy hands is good, but I don't want anybody kissing me. Especially when you look at the New Testament, and then it was a common greeting for guys to give guys a kiss on the cheek and sometimes on the lips. And women to do the same thing. You're thinking, do we want to do that too? It's in the Bible. It's even commanded. Wow. You know, when I go to Russia, you know, and there's all people are so happy to see me. I get out my American hand out there. <laughs> you know, they just, they just want to kiss all over me. It's like, yeah, give them a little American culture real quick. Yeah. You know, and the principle behind holy hands is not the position of the hands. And even among those who think they should raise hands, you know, do you do it like this or like this or like this? I mean, there's even disagreement about how you should put your hands the proper holy hand raising position. But listen, you can go to a rock concert today, see the people in the front row. And what are they doing? You know, they got their hands up and they're swaying back and forth because the music is ministering to them. You know, it makes them feel good. Well, worship has nothing to do with you feeling good. I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with what you like. I am so sorry about that. Worship is about God and what God likes conforming to God's truth. With the mind, the emotion, with the heart. And yes, it's okay to do it with the body too. But don't think that some position is what God is concerned about. He's concerned about the heart. He wants your heart and he wants it conformed to the truth. Spirit and truth. And when it comes to holy kiss, God is just the principle there is just affectionately greet one another for corporate worship. You know, we do some hugs and some handshakes and some howdy do's and hey, how's it going? Head maneuvering, you know, whatever works. (laughs) But in doing this, you would never want to do anything that was improper, sensual, sinful, contrary to God's word. If it ever caused anybody to stumble, that would be wrong. If it ever attracted attention to yourself and away from God, that would be wrong. So, yeah, you know, position is not so relevant. You know, you you could you know, be in a group of hand wavers and, you know, you could wave your hand, it's fine. But, you know, I've been places where, you know, one person is standing up waving their hands and nobody else is. And what's everybody doing then? They're looking at the person waving their hands. And, and is it the, the hand, the position of the hand's a big deal? No. Distracting attention away from the Lord and worship, that's a big deal. So sometimes, you know, when... You're in a culture and that's how they do it. You do it that way. When you go to another place and they do it, you do it the other way. If you want further study on this, here's some things you can do. Um, there is a series on worship from 2003 um, that you can listen to those 
messages on worship. Um, Pastor uh, Edward preached a sermon, Don't Pretend to Worship, on 6-19-05. Um, I preached two messages on prayer, 7-25-04 and 8-1-04, that uh, will tell you more about worship and prayer so you can know all about that. Question three. This is another New Testament question related to end times. Matthew 24 speaks of the end times and what must take place. Is the fig tree in Matthew 24, 32, Israel becoming a nation in 1948? And are we the generation spoken of in Matthew 24, 34 based on Matthew 24, 32? That's a lot of questions there. So let's talk about question three, part A. Um, What are the end times? What are the end times? Well... When you go through the Bible, um, there are several different phrases that describe the end times. I'm just going to give you some references of these. For instance, this is how the New American Standard translates it. Um, the end of the age, which is Matthew 24, 3. The last times, 1 Peter 1, 5, 1 Peter 1, 20, and Jude 18. The phrase last days appears in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, and James chapter 5 verse 3, and 2 Peter 3 3. Or the phrase the end, which is in Matthew 24 6 and 24 14, which all kind of speak of the end times. Okay, But in Matthew 24, the disciples asked the question, the whole section is a response to the question asked in verse 3 of Matthew 24. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In other words, when will the temple be knocked down and destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So that is the question which launches Jesus into this big discussion of the end times. And so Jesus goes on to explain what will happen leading up to the tribulation, that seven-year period right before Jesus returns, what will happen during the tribulation, especially the end of the tribulation, and what happens right before the second coming of Christ. And so the context of Matthew 24, since context is king, tells us that the phrase end of the age and the phrase the end in Matthew 24 refer to the signs or times immediately preceding the tribulation, the signs in the tribulation, and the signs right before the second coming. Question three, part B, is the fig tree in Matthew 24, 32, Israel becoming a nation in 1948? No. Realize that Jesus is using the fig tree as an illustration. If you turn to Matthew 24, and get there if you weren't there already. Uh, Matthew 24, you'll see how he uses this. In um, verse 32, Matthew 24, verse 32, he's just got through explaining the tribulation, the signs of the tribulation, and right before the second coming and the second coming. And he says this in verse 32, he says, now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And what's that about? Um, well, it's pretty easy there. All, all you can say is, is it's near, it's right at the door. Uh, what, what is near and right at the door? Second coming, you know, <laughs> that's it. Um, what was the question? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Okay, he's answering. If you want to know it, this is it. The whole point is is this. 
When you go out into the yard and you see your fig tree in the spring budding and new leaves coming out, you think to yourself, you know what? It's spring and summer's coming. You know, no duh. The whole point Jesus is making, when you see all these things that I've told you about that are going to occur before the tribulation, in the tribulation, and right before my second coming, no duh. That's it. That's what he's doing. So, many people, though, have taught that Israel, when they became a nation in 1948, was this huge prophetic fulfillment. And you know what? It was significant. But I don't think it was necessarily a huge prophetic fulfillment, and I'll tell you why. Because most of the texts people use to refer to this are texts that talk about Jews returning to the land. Well, they are already there, for one thing, but yes, many more did come after they became a nation. But... When you look at those texts that talk about the Jews returning to the land, most of them are in reference to the Jews returning to the land to worship the Lord during the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Let me just give you an example of this. And as I read this text, Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, when I read Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13, ask yourself, is this is what happened in 1948? In that day, the Lord will start his threshing floor from flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and all who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Does that happen? No. The Jews are not worshiping the Lord now. The Jews have rejected the Messiah. They have committed themselves to reject Jesus. Nationally speaking, most Jews do not believe in Jesus. Now, if you want to get a really good chart, if you look at the MacArthur Study Bible, which, by the way, has recently come out in the New American Standard Version, you look at Isaiah chapter 65, there's a great chart of just verses that talk about this um, in there, there's tons of them just in Isaiah. And you can look at cross-references and you realize they're all through the prophets and the minor prophets. But when you look at these verses, you see that the gathering of Israel to the land to worship the Lord is something that happens after the tribulation. The second coming and in the millennium thereafter. Now, this is why it is significant or possibly is significant, that the Jews returned to the land in 1948. In 1948, what happened was they became a nation, and a lot of Jews came. Well, when the tribulation begins, there has to be Jews in the land. And they have to be building a temple, and they have to undergo persecution so that they can be refined and God can bring many of them to repentance. So that has to happen. But it could be that the Jews that are there today are conquered, driven out of the land. Every Jew that's there either exterminated or chased out. And that a thousand years from now, they come back, become a nation, and then Jesus comes back. I mean, that could be the case. I don't think so. And I'm not a prophet. But I don't think so. I think that, you know, the time, like all good Christians believe, is at hand for Christ to return. But you can't say with absolute certainty that, you know, the Jews in the land today, it has to be the ones. Um, if you think about it, we are in the time of the Gentiles, and Babylon conquered 
Jerusalem, right? And um, Greece, Rome, the Turks. I mean, for a long time, they've been displaced. And just because they came back doesn't mean they can't be kicked out and brought back again. I don't think so, but it's not hugely important. What is important is that before the tribulation begins, there's got to be Jews in the land. And so that is why I think that most likely their being in land is significant because they're probably the ones who are going to be in the land when God decides to bring the tribulation on them, the time of Jacob's trouble to bring them to repentance. Question three, part C. Are we the generation spoken of in Matthew 24, 34, based on Matthew 24, 32, the fig tree illustration? Look at Matthew 24, 34. Jesus has been talking about the tribulation period right before the second coming and giving all the signs and even talks about the second coming himself and then uses the fig tree budding in the spring as an illustration of knowing what's coming after that. And then in verse 20 or verse 34 of chapter 24, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, there's basically two interpretations of this generation. You know, is it our generation? And it is it their generation? Is it some future generation? There's basically two popular there. One's not very popular, but um, there's two major views of this. One is from the post millennialists or theonomic reconstructionists or preterists. And if you don't know what those terms are, it's OK. That's all right. Um, But I'm just telling you the groups, just in case um, you want to know. This is what postmillennialists believe. Postmillennialists believe that when Titus came to sack Jerusalem in 70 AD, when he defiled the temple, that that was the tribulation period. And all the prophecies in the New Testament, all that stuff that Jesus talked about, the whole book of Revelation, all the way up until the second coming of Christ in the eternal state has already been fulfilled. That's why they're called preterists. They've already think it's happened. And they believe that right now, Jesus is ruling in his kingdom spiritually through believers. So you and I have Jesus ruling in us. So his kingdom is now. And Jesus is wanting us as a church to get our act together and to infiltrate government, infiltrate the media, take control of the world, evangelize the lost until pretty soon Christianity becomes this global phenomena. And the Reconstructionists, which are a subcategory of postmillennialists, those people want to reinstitute the Old Testament law so that then the law of Moses is now the civil law that's really we start killing people who disobey their parents and you know chopping people's heads off or whatever who you know commit rape i mean whatever it is you know strong death sentences all those things that are described we reinstitute the law and when the world is finally captured for the most part for Christ and there is this utopian state then Jesus will come back to receive the kingdom that's already been set up. That's why it's called post-millennium or post-kingdom, post-thousand-year reign of Christ. Thousand years is just an undisclosed, undefined term just to say a long time. So in other words, think of evolution applied to end times. Things are getting better and better and better and better and better. 
And pretty soon they get so good, Jesus comes back and says, huh, give me my kingdom. Okay, that's what postmillennialism um, teaches. And that is why when they interpret this phrase, this generation, they see it to mean the generation of the apostles, Jesus and the apostles. So when Jesus says, this generation shall not come to pass, they're saying, well, that was it. And that's why the tribulation has already occurred and Jesus is already spiritually reigning and Satan is spiritually bound by the gospel and, you know, all those things that are described in Revelation. Yet this could not be as all these things, which is mentioned in the verse, did not take place by 70 AD when Jerusalem was sacked by Titus. There were no signs in the heaven visible to all, no second coming of Christ physically and bodily to earth, no separation of believers from unbelievers, no gathering of the elect. So that view doesn't work. Sorry. Not only that, the Bible says things in the end times will proceed from bad to worse, not worse to good. Never forget, though, that context is always the king of all interpretive principles. So when somebody says, what is this generation? Man, time goes by fast. Now, I didn't give this to the early service, but I'm going to give it to you because it's kind of fun. This is going to take you back to grade school. Do you do you remember near and far demonstratives? No. Okay. Um, I didn't either. I didn't learn those at school. I don't know where I was. I was sleeping that day. Uh, there are what are called near and far demonstratives. Okay, and this this is the near demonstratives. Near is this, and the plural form is these. So this, these music stands, these pews, this pulpit, those would be near. Far demonstratives would be those and them, that you're talking about things that are away from you. There's kind of have a connotation of things near and things far. Jesus says this near generation shall not pass away until all these things are compassed. So it seems to say upon first reading, if you don't look at the context, that Jesus is talking about his generation. He's saying this generation. He's speaking to people in this generation. It's an irredemonstrative. It seems like that should it be. But remember the context. Verse 3. What was the question? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen before the tribulation. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen in the tribulation. Let me tell you what's going to happen during the great tribulation and the signs right before the second coming. This generation will not come to pass until all these things. What? The generation that witnesses the signs that Jesus just described would happen right before the second coming. Now, could that be this generation? I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. You know, I don't want to see the signs. I'm going to be raptured. Um, But if you want to see them, um, you won't get to unless you're not a believer now and you become a believer in in the tribulation. But... This generation could see all of those signs. The rapture could happen, and within the next 30 years or whatever, if the rapture happened, of course, within seven years, the generation living would see those signs and would know from those signs that the second coming is near, just like people who have fig trees know when they start budding out in spring, summer's near. That's pretty much all it's saying. Okay. 
Moving on. Question number four. Could you please go over the passage in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? Even after several readings of study, I can't seem to work out what it means and why it's there. Well, let's turn there. Exodus 4. One of those passages you never want to ask, but you want to ask about. So let's just look at it. It'll be an archive now, and I won't ever have to ask it, answer it again. Okay, Exodus 4, 24 through 26. And while you're finding that passage, let me tell you what's happened. Moses has already grown up in Egypt. He's killed the Egyptian. He's fled from Egypt. He's married the daughter of Reuel, who is also known as Jethro. He has had the experience with the burning bush, has been called by God to deliver the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt, the land promised to Abraham. Moses is on his way to Egypt to do what God asked him to do, deliver the people. And this is what we read in chapter 4, verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way, that is the way to Egypt, that the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let, her, uh, let him, that is Moses, alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now what is happening here? People read this and go, What? Um, Moses is heading back to Egypt. And he has a son, and his son isn't circumcised. The problem is, is Moses grew up in a Jewish household. When he was older, he got the education of all the Egyptians. So he was around the Jews. He even killed an Egyptian for harming a Jew. He knew about the... Instruction God gave to Abraham that all males would be circumcised on the eighth day and that any male and even a servant who wasn't circumcised was to be cut off. He knew all of that. Now, the question is, why didn't he circumcise his son? Well, when you look at the text there, who's the angry person? Zipporah. What happened, what appears to happen here is that Zipporah... Probably a pagan woman. Zipporah is the daughter of the priest of Midian. Did not want Moses to circumcise her son. So on the eighth day, she probably caused a fuss and said, you're not touching my son. And so Moses then listened to the voice of his wife, let her rule over him in this instance, and he submitted to her wishes. So, God, on the other hand, was not willing to submit to Zipporah. (laughs) And Moses, who was the leader of his family, the head of his family, and was responsible to make sure that his family did what God said was right, is now on his way to be the great deliverer of the people of Israel. He's on his way to Egypt. The problem is, is God shows up along the way in whatever form, an angel or whatever, and says, I'm going to have to kill you. I'm going to have to kill you because you knew you should have circumcised your son. And here your son is, he's not circumcised. So I'm going to kill you because of your rebellion against me. Zipporah then realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to lose my husband. And so then she decides, all right, 
and she circumcises her son. Well, you know, circumcision's bad when kids get older. And so not only does she not want to do it, but she has to do it to her son who's now older, and she's so angry and frustrated that her husband's life's in peril, and now she has to circumcise her son in haste in order to save her husband's life, that she grabbed the foreskin, throws it at his feet, and says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me in anger. And God got his way. Said, be angry at your husband all you want, but I'm getting my way. And so that's what happened. Now, there is such a cool question left, but we can't give it. I told the people in the first service I wouldn't tell you it, even though we have a couple minutes. We could almost do it. It won't fit. It won't fit on the tape. And that would be a problem, you know. Um, I've tried this a couple other times, and I'm going through the question. It's like, yeah, now the important thing. <laughs> and then they all come into the office shaking their CD. <laughs> what is the answer? So we better not cause that riot. Next week, we'll have some more great questions and hopefully some helpful answers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we were able to learn from your word today. You are such a good God. You are so kind to us. You are so loving. You are so faithful. We thank you for your word, which gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We are thankful, Father, that you take care of us, that you watch over us, that, Father, you meet our needs. And, Father, walk um, with us as we are in our trials because you have sent us the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. Father, may we trust in you. May we pray to you frequently. May we worship you in everything that we do. And Father, may we be careful not to use our worship or our prayer to sin or cause others to stumble. Father, if there's somebody here who has never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would save them now, that you would cause them to place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, they might be born again and transformed and changed forever and more into your children. Father, we just pray for this, knowing that you will do it in your good time, because you are all-powerful and nothing is impossible for you. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.